Today's Dead Idea, this is part two of our final series on steampunk Rome. Last time we heard just how damn close the ancient world was, technology-wise at least, to an industrial revolution. Surprisingly close! Surprisingly close! And for funsies, we did our damnedest to investigate if they could actually have constructed a steam locomotive using only technology of the day. And we were hard-pressed to find any serious obstacle. Little things, yes, but they probably could have done it. And in the process, we got a solid sense of just how much technology that they actually had at their fingertips. We were surprised by a number of things, the yeah. machining capability, a lot of things, right? Yep. Now, at this point, the most interesting question is not, could they have undergone an industrial revolution, but why didn't they? And that's what we're going to talk about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westoff, my lovely wife, who's in the garage today getting her stola full of grease as she tightens the last bolts on her new steam-powered chariot. <laughs> stola, I had to look that up. That's what they call a common Roman woman's thing that they wore. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, if you wore a toga as a woman, originally, that was totally normal, but Ooh. as the... As the culture went on, you were thought to be a prostitute if you were. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like menswear like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So as we saw last time, so far as we know, the ancient Romans did not build steam vehicles, but they very likely could have. In fact, there's a fascinating graphic by Jason Torchinsky that you could find on the internet. It's called Heroes Hypothetical Hellenistic Hot Rod. <laughs> <laughs> and it diagrams in detail a steam-powered automobile using only ancient world technology. Ooh. And we will link to that in our show notes in our episode post at www.deadideas.net, where you can also see all kinds of other pictures and visuals and references and everything else that we're talking about today. Once again, for our co-host for the series, we have Andre Solo. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Last time, Andre, you and I played in the sandbox to see if we could build the steam locomotive using only Roman technology. Couldn't come up with anything to say that they couldn't. And that exercise gave us a fairly good idea of what they had at their fingertips, right? Now, as we said at the end of the last episode, it takes more than a steam locomotive to have an industrial revolution, right? It's it's a very complex well, process. Well, actually, if, if you're in the United States, all it takes is one British guy coming over with the schematics to a British cotton mill. But <laughs> if you're Britain, it takes a lot more than just one... Uh... Okay, let's assume that we're the first one having an industrial revolution. <laughs> right. Yeah. So a steam locomotive does not equal an industrial revolution, not by a long shot. There's a whole array of different factors that have to come together to create a phenomenon of that complexity. Hmm. So today we're going to go deep into that. We're not in a sandbox anymore. It's not funsies anymore. This is like, this is where we get serious. Serious time, guys. Yes. We're going to look at a number of different factors of the industrial revolution as it happened in 18th century Britain. And then we are going to see how Rome stacks up against each and every one of those. And then finally, we'll be in a better position to understand why the Industrial Revolution was delayed 2,000 years. And by the way, I'm going to tip my hand a bit and say that we're not going to find a single smoking gun that was the reason why Rome did not industrialize, mm -hmm. but rather a combination of things that up to a kind of maybe sort of possible explanation. And at the very end, 
we're going to hear what historian Lucio Russo's opinion is for why Rome didn't industrialize. And by that point, I think you'll find the most interesting question might not be why didn't Rome experience an industrial revolution, but rather why didn't Hellenistic Greece a generation before Ooh. experience an industrial like revolution? A history generation before, I guess. Yeah, like an era yeah. before. <laughs> an era before, yeah. An era before. Right. But we'll leave that for now. That will be for another Was episode. it centaurs? It was centaur. How did you guess it was centaurs? Always the centaurs. Right now, let's focus on Rome and how it measures up on the factors contributing to the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so there are a number of different factors. We can't talk about them all, obviously, but we'll just do like a short list mm -hmm. of the most relevant ones that are the most interesting for a comparison with Rome. For a number of them, Rome pretty much checks out, and a lot of them we've already talked about in the last episode. They were pretty much boxing in the same weight class as Britain on a lot of these, or at least close to it. They were in the same league, hmm. right? So when we you say really... Britain, you mean Britain in the 1600s, 18th century Britain. So 1700s. 1700s. For example, Britain had massive innovations in technology. Check. The Romans had that. All of those things that we talked about last time, the water organ, you know, the aeola pile, the temple doors that open and close by steam power. They had all kinds of innovations in technology going on. So as long as the culture is having innovations, that's a good right. sign here. Okay, that's, cool. That's exactly yeah, what I, I buy by that. Yeah. Second, the availability of coal and iron. Check. Mm, yep. They had all of the coal that Britain had. They weren't mining it, but they had it available. And they had megatons of iron, as we heard last time. They couldn't cast it, but they had the iron. They were mining it in massive quantities. They could hammer out stuff. They were good. Mm. Another factor... Britain had political influence over India and other colonies that gave it all kinds of like resources to draw on. Yeah. Rome was all about conquest. Rome had all kinds of territories at its fingertips and its resources. Yep. All across them, you know, they had the tin of Britain. They had the this from every you know, everywhere had contributed its own little thing. Rome was good when it came to that. But Rome hadn't come up with IPAs yet. <laughs> definitely not <laughs> that was another one of those cascade things where once you invade the steam locomotive then you're going to need something for the the engineers to drink to drink on the way yeah, yeah so it's, it's gonna get invented yeah. yeah okay yeah so another thing that we don't have to talk about a whole lot because we just know the answer full stop is a factor that rome did not have that britain did have they were not boxing in the same weight class and that is they did not have the printing press, which mm. equaled widespread availability of cheap knowledge to more than just uh, extremely small educated elite to the populace. So what that meant was uh, learning was concentrated in these communities of educated elite that were always quite fragile to being disrupted and like even snuffed out, yeah. you know, if the political winds were to change. That was a major liability that Rome had. Mm. Okay. Now, there are a bunch of other factors that are much more interesting because the situation is a lot more complicated. There's more that we can kind of like debate and like weigh out. So, Andre, I've got a short list of these things. I've got six of them, and I'm going to present them to you, and I'm going to let you choose which ones that you would like to explore first, whether that's because you think that's the one that's going to say, this is why they didn't industrialize, mm -hmm. or you know, for whatever other reason, like you think maybe they totally could box so the same weight class. So there's six of them. Yeah. 
uh, can I roll an ancient Roman knucklebone die and <laughs> six choose that die. way? <laughs> uh, y- yes, sure. Feel free. No. <laughs> so for each of these, we're going to compare Rome and Britain on these measures and Great. see how Rome shakes out. So okay. Rome at the height of the empire, you said around 10 to 70 CE last time. Is the, yes, or that's is, the, was the height of the period that right. we're focusing on. That's like Augustus and what came just after, sure. basically. Versus 1700s Versus, Britain. It, yes, okay. which was the beginning of Britain's industrial evolution. Love yep. it. Okay. Okay, ready? Yes. So here are your choices. Number one, the free labor economy. Okay. Number two, a culture of growth. Ooh, okay. Number three, improved transportation systems. Oh, wow, okay. Number four, the textile manufacturing industry. Hmm. Number five, financial innovations, such as capital investment and entrepreneurship. And number six, an agricultural revolution and enclosures of land leading to urbanization. Wow. All of these are like, Academics and scholars put these forth as like, these are biggies in why yeah. Britain industrialized. Right. So if we ran into an alien civilization, we could tell how close they are to industrializing based on these six things. Theoretically, I guess so. I put 100% stock in that. Um, <laughs> I As much as I hate to just choose number one, let's go okay. with number one, free labor. I'm curious. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the free labor economy. This is kind of weird, but for Rome, it's super relevant. Because here's a big, big, big difference between 18th century Britain and ancient Rome. 18th century Britain had free citizens. Rome had a very large population of slave labor. Mm. That's a very stark difference in how your society is set up. It has wide-ranging ramifications for how your economy works Mm. and the motivations of your capitalists and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay. So in Britain, its laborers were free. They could go where the work was. They weren't tied to the land like serfs. In Britain, if jobs were scarce in the countryside, they could head to the city for new factory jobs, and that would contribute to urbanization. Hmm. Roman slaves, by contrast, were stuck wherever their owners put them, unless the owner was insightful enough to recognize that, hey, if I send my slave to the city to work in the factories... I'm going to make more money too, but not everybody, you know, you were limited to the insightfulness of your owner at least, you know? Right. So you were limited mobility as a worker mm-hmm. if you were a slave. And Rome had like, uh, I've seen figures between a third of the population was slaves to as high as like half the population. I think it was probably more like a third, but I mean, it was a lot of slaves. Absolutely. I mean, going back to my high school Latin teacher, I, I was told that <laughs> there was actually discussion in the Senate of like, we should make slaves wear some distinguishing marks. You know, if someone's a slave and they vetoed that because they did not want the slaves to know, look around and see how many other slaves there were. Like that would oh, be wow. a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I... If that's true, I'm going to, if it's not, I'm blaming my high school Latin teacher, but that's what he told me. <laughs> Well, I will say that the Roman economy's deep dependence on slave labor is often held up as a key reason why Rome never industrialized. Mm. A lot of people have said that, scholars and regular people, lay people alike. The idea in essence is why bother developing mechanized power like a steam press for an olive oil factory, for example, when you can just have slaves do the same work. The wide availability of cheap labor would have made mechanization economically undesirable, according to this argument. Moreover, there's a real question of if you do mechanize, 
what's going to happen to all those slaves? Hmm. Nobody wants another Spartacus rebellion on their hands. Right. In this case, it would almost be like a Spartaco-Luddite kind of rebellion. Well, and also nobody wants... I mean, if you own, let's say, 10,000 slaves, and I always feel honestly conflicted even just talking about slaves as an economic resource. It feels very dirty to me, but this is the reality for these ancient Roman upper class. If you own, say, 10,000 slaves and they have a certain market value, either for their labor if you keep them or for their value if you sell them, and then suddenly the value of slave labor drops because of mechanization, that's a big issue. And we know that people do tend to protect their economic interests. Like, you don't want the value of an asset you own to drop, so you might take measures to deter things that would compete with that asset. That's true, unless you recognize that the value is greater if you replace that asset yeah, with right. something else, say machinery. Definitely. But it's being able to see that next step, yeah. and visualize that into the like future. If you're already invested in slaves, it would be scary, maybe. But if you right. are more like, I have some slaves, but if, I really if, want to develop the steam power or whatever. If you were the it's... Amazon.com of slaves. Yeah. <laughs> If you had slaves droned in all across the Mediterranean, <laughs> right. you would not want them to be replaced by machines. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this question is made all the more poignant if you look at 18th century America. So industrializing America, too. Oh, right. Because, of course, the South had slaves. The North, not so much. Mm-hmm. The North industrialized much faster than the South. Yep. There were a whole lot of different reasons for why that was that we don't have to go into. But it does make you go, huh? Hmm. So looking at Imperial Rome now, is this what could have held them back, right? The Roman slave economy. That argument that it held them back is pretty thoroughly repudiated in the academic world. And the reasons can be stated pretty succinctly. So first of all, slaves were by no means free labor. They were not free labor. You didn't have to pay them, but you had to pay all of their upkeep. You You also had to buy them in the first place. You had to buy them in the first place, but that's just the beginning. Then you had to feed them. Then you had to clothe them. Then you had to house them. Then you had to keep them reasonably happy, at least enough that they're not like running off and rebelling every day, because that's a whole cost to try to track them down too. There's a lot that goes into the upkeep of a human being. <laughs> and that's not free. Right. So slaves are not a free labor. Kind I'm going to push economy. back on that a little bit. Okay. So I'm going to give a parallel today. I don't have any slaves, thank God. But I have websites. One of them sells stuff. And I don't own any brick and mortar stores. There's upkeep costs for running the websites. But the bottom line is, compared to a brick and mortar store, my website is very cheap to run. It would cost me a lot more to sell the same stuff in a brick and mortar store. And I think something similar attains here. We're like, is it just totally free to use slaves? No. But is it a lot cheaper than paying wages? Yeah. And I think that that does mean there's some pressure on people who have to pay employees to seek out efficiency in a way that people who own slaves don't nearly as much have to do. So I would push back on your pushback. Oh, yes, let's do it. It's a pushback fight. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, one of the things that we learned in our series on Russian serfdom was that there's this kind of like historical dynamic Mm -hmm. between like slave economies and free labor economies and when they bounce between the two and make changes Mm -hmm. when it becomes cheaper to just pay a free person a wage Mm -hmm. to do the same work that you would have a slave do Mm -hmm. that's usually in history when you saw serfdom and slavery decrease okay which means that those two costs the upkeep of a slave 
and the wage of a laborer mm-hmm. is not a vast gulf. Uh, it's much closer no. than you might expect. Okay. Enough that the one could overtake the other. Right. So it's a lot closer than I think you'd oh, expect. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yep. Now, <laughs> mechanization is not free either. Machinery requires a substantial upfront investment. It also has upkeep costs for maintenance, for repair, and all of that stuff. However, you can potentially run a machine 24 hours a day without rest, without food, without threat of rebellion, without any of that, hmm. theoretically. Yeah. I know that, like, right. you know, strain and stress on a thing. Sure, sure. But, you know, ideally. Furthermore, a slave's energy only substitutes for the owner's energy, right? The slave mm-hmm. does what the owner would otherwise do, except the owner can buy another person and make them do it. So it doesn't add energy to the total system doesn't make more energy well, available no, to the one economy. owner could have like 40 slaves and they could do the work of 40 men which the owner couldn't do 40 men's work on their own uh yes but if all of them were just free men if they were just working, still the total number it would of... still be the total oh. equivalent of energy put into the system yeah no you're right yeah. whereas a machine mm-hmm. can input far greater potentially energy yeah. so basically i think that the long-term benefits of mechanization would have been realized fairly quickly yeah. by Romans, and investments would have paid back and then some. Yeah, and you saw that with the kind of investments they did make, where they mechanized with water mills mm-hmm. and you know all kinds of things like that. Finally, I don't think it plausible that the Romans, as a whole, would be so wise as to hold themselves back from mechanization out of fear of a slave rebellion. Mm-hmm. I think you always have some idiot who's going to try it, no matter what. Right? Yeah. And then once they like start being like, whoa, look at all this amazing, you know, productivity that my factory, you know, is doing, everybody else kind of is forced to compete. Yeah. And so you're going to be dragged along regardless. That makes sense to me. So I, I just don't buy the slave economy argument as it's ever been put to me. I know that you have some thoughts on that as well. I, okay, I have a little thought and a big thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the little thought, this is just a minor thing, but I want to harken back to something you said before. The issue of like, In Britain, labor could go where the jobs were. And I think that that's an important thing. In a slave economy, it relies on the relatively small number of people who are not just slave owners, but wealthy slave owners for a majority or some crucial number of them to say, oh, we should be moving our labor toward this. We should be making the choice to mechanize. We should be choosing to move toward this new way of doing things. Uh If it doesn't occur to them or if they don't have the incentive, It's not going to happen. But in the free labor economy, if there's even a small incentive to let's try factory work instead, Mm -hmm. you'll have huge movements of people and you'll have people trying it. So I think there's a little bit more of a threshold in a slave economy where you have to hit a crucial number of key decision makers willing to try something. Whereas in a free economy, anybody can go try it. And if it's starting to work, more and more people will try it. I do buy that. So I'd give some weight to that. Yeah, I think Yeah, I think that, that that's a contributing factor. Now, the other thing, now this, this fascinates me. This is going to get a little off in the weeds, right? But I'm going to compare this to the oil industry today. So oil is profitable right now in 2018, highly profitable. Mm-hmm. And it's generally been profitable for most of the history of the oil industry. Mm-hmm. But there was a period... In the 2000s, where oil became far less profitable, and that was just because we had used up uh, most of the easy-to-access reserves, and we hadn't yet developed fracking technology to make use of the harder-to-access reserves. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that during the decades leading up to that, 
automation technology to replace workers with automated you know, devices. That had been getting better and better year after year, decade after decade. But on oil rigs, they weren't making use of it mm-hmm. until suddenly the profitability of oil collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so in the mid-2000s, when the profitability collapsed, the number of oil rigs stayed the same, but almost overnight, like within the space of a few years, mm-hmm. the number of, of employees on the oil rigs just plummeted. It was a huge percentage, like 50%, 70% drop, right? Mm-hmm. So what that means is that the people who own the oil rigs could have automated five years earlier, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier. They didn't have an incentive to do so. They, yeah. Nobody's looking to trim the fat when you're making just hand over fist profit. Mm-hmm. And the second they were in an, a budget crunch, yeah. they were like, well, what can we trim? And they were like, well, okay, let's listen to this guy who's trying to sell us some automated equipment. And they just fired half their employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I wonder if that's the secret sauce in a way that could have been missing from the slave economy. In ancient Rome, if the cost of slaves was low and they didn't experience a sudden crunch where slaves became scarce or expensive, mm-hmm then even though they could have made more money by automating or mechanizing things, mm-hmm. they might not have just bothered to do so. Yeah, I buy that. So if we theoretically had a plague that disproportionately affected the lower population yeah, right. or something, yep. and then you had a lot less slaves, maybe that would be an incentive to put into use a lot more of the technology that they had available in, you know, in design, yeah. but not in practice. Yeah, or same thing if one of the crazy em- emperors like Nero had just ordered every third slave killed or had said every child of a slave is now free, you still have some slaves, but suddenly it's, it's a crunch. So that yeah. might have spurred it. I still feel dirty. Still feel dirty. I apologize to listeners. <laughs> okay, so that's the free labor economy. So here's your remaining choices to right. talk about. A culture of growth, improved transportation systems, the textile manufacturing industry, financial innovations, or the agricultural revolution? Uh, culture of... Wait, no. Wait, what was number three? Transportation. Improved transportation. System. Transportation. Let's do All that right. way. Okay. So improved transportation. Britain's industrial revolution was in part facilitated by making it a hell of a lot easier to get goods from place to place. One way that they did it very early on was by building a shit ton of canals. Mm. And this was actually, surprisingly, a way to make it easier for horses to draw things. So what you do is you'd have like this kind of like barge Mm -hmm. of goods on the canal and then ropes to horses on either side of the canal that would pull it along the water. Easier to pull it along water than along land. Yep. Simple. Right. So first of all, we can say Roman canals. Check. They totally had canals. They really? had canals all over the place. They didn't institute them at the level that we're talking about in industrial Britain. Were they used for like horse-drawn barges? No, nope. they... okay, nope. but they, they had for? canals. Okay. They, had, they built canals all over the place, mostly for drainage, but also sometimes for navigation, you know, getting from place to place. Yep. There's even suggestion that the Suez Canal, hailed as a monumental achievement of the modern era, was actually a recycling of a concept all the way back to ancient Egypt. Wow. It's a little bit disputed, but it could possibly have been done. Depending on what sources you believe, it may have been completed in the second millennium BCE by the pharaohs. What? And then renovated by the Persian emperor Darius, and finally regulated by locks and sluice gates by the Romans. Wow. I don't know if I buy that, but that's possible. But even if you don't believe that, any number of much smaller canals could be found all over Italy and the rest of the Roman Empire. So suffice to say that canal building was very much a thing in Roman times. They totally could have 
stumbled to the same idea, and that could have greatly improved their transportation systems. So Rome pretty much checks out there. Another British transportation advantage was, of course, the steam locomotive, which we talked about last time. Once that got going, it was on for Britain. But was it a factor in starting the Industrial Revolution, or did that really come because of the Industrial Revolution? All these factors in the Industrial Revolution are like, so it's not like a a sequence. Yeah, right. It's more like all these things come together and just they synergize, Hmm. right? So steam locomotives were later than a lot of other things, but they definitely contributed and synergized a hell of a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, if the Romans had, in fact, built a steam-powered vehicle like that, that would have really improved their transportation prospects. Hmm. Finally, question of roads. Britain had a network of very good roads maintained by something called turnpike trusts. A turnpike trust was a kind of privatization of road maintenance. Basically, uh, this is starting in like the 1750s. Groups of people maintained roads, and in return, they were allowed to charge tolls on those roads. So you're making a profit off of it. You basically were crowdsourcing your infrastructure maintenance. You know, it gave people an incentive to keep the roads good, and then everybody's just going to do it for you. As a government, you don't have to do that. Right. Now, Rome... To my knowledge, didn't have anything even remotely similar to that. I don't know if they had... They might have had some tolls, I don't know, but nothing on this scale for sure. Yeah, and, and we did talk last time about how the highways were specifically developed by the government to be for armies to get around. Yeah, to start yeah. with. Right. To start with the Appian Way, for sure. And the other thing is that Rome was a basically a centrally planned economy. Not really, but kind of. Hmm. Because like all of the direction was in the emperor. This is not the Republic anymore, right? Right. So it was all in the hands of the emperor and his bureaucracy. You didn't have a very wide middle class that had enough capital to invest in things. And you certainly didn't have any kind of wide scale, like reaching out to the lower classes in order to um, make a profit and like, you know, do these things for us. Mm. This turnpike trust kind of way. You did, however, have major, major road projects at the hands of the government. And this, like, they just went crazy with their roads. The Romans were all about building roads. So if you if you look in Britain mm-hmm. at the roads that were left over from that time period, you can easily tell the ones that were built by native Britons okay. and ones that were built by Romans. Because the ones built by native Britons would, like, follow the terrain and wind around the hills and take the path mm-hmm. of least resistance. But the Romans just cut right through whatever it is. <laughs> Like, they went through hills, they went across rivers and ravines, building bridges and stuff. Like, the motto of the ancient Roman Department of Transportation could have been, Rome don't give a fuck. We're just (laughs) going through it. (laughs) I I choose to believe that that was indeed their motto. We talked about tunneling last time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they, they now, that's the something that the they did not do for stuff. highways. They didn't tunnel through things, right? They would maybe cut, like, a, a canyon if they had to through a hill, but not tunnel, like, an enclosed tunnel. Mm, I don't know if I read of an example, but I would be surprised if they didn't. I would be surprised if they did, but okay, in any case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, suffice to say that Rome was all about building roads. They had a great road system, but they didn't crowdsource the maintenance of it, so it was a constant drain. Mm. on the roman state right wow there you go so that's what i have to say pretty much about uh transportation system so the one thing we didn't cover in a lot of detail was um seagoing vessels and now Mm. the the british are are famous for the strength of their maritime vessels not only their military navy but also in this time period their their merchant like the number and 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 strength of their merchant vessels that would take things all over the place 
and in ancient Rome, they certainly had plenty of maritime traffic happening. I mean, they yeah. literally owned the Mediterranean Sea and just called it our sea, right? But like, my understanding of ancient Rome is if you had to book passage on a ship to get somewhere, even just around the Mediterranean, you were just offering lambs and just doing anything you could. Like the chance of your ship going down was decent. You know, (laughs) it was not unusual. This was not like boarding a Delta flight where you're like one in a million. This thing goes down. It's like, no, like I'd rather be on a road with drunk drivers than get on a Roman ship. You know, I I don't know what the equivalence is in Britain. Like I know they had bigger, uh, you know, transatlantic in some cases ships. But like, did those ships frequently go down or could you be reasonably confident your cargo or family members would get where they were going? Well, I don't know any numbers. Mm-hmm. I don't know the rates. I I do I have read like in classical texts examples of people being terribly afraid of seagoing vessels, right. vessels, um, up to and including uh, Seneca, who was a stoic of all things, who just yeah. like freaked the fuck out. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. here's what I can say about uh, seagoing vessels for Rome: it was at least safe enough that they took the risk mm-hmm. and they shipped things all over the place. Right, you had. Two-thirds of Rome's grain supplied by Egypt. Okay, well, That's true, yeah. Yep. Right. They didn't just stick to the shore. They actually did have the navigational techniques to cut straight across the Mediterranean, nice. open sea, yep. um, which wasn't developed again until quite late. Yeah. And, and like Renaissance, obviously, right? And not only that, but the size of their ships was off the charts. Really? Going all the way back to like the Hellenistic period. Hmm. You've all, you've of course heard of like biremes and triremes, right? Sure, it's like yeah. two rows of oarsmen, three rows of oarsmen, and they would just go on up that scale. They just kept raising the numbers until they got to like imperial like star destroyers, basically <laughs> that were cruising around the Mediterranean. Yeah, it was like you would get up to like seven or eight rows. Wow. And, it's, and it actually referred to the number of rowers in a column rather than the number of oars. Because you have more oh, than sure. one rower yeah. on an oar. Right. But nevertheless, that's a lot of freaking people. Yeah. You had ships that had like crews of thousands, literally thousands. Wow. And then even above like seven or eight, which that's why I'm, I'm cutting that off because that's kind of like the practical use level. Sure. But then they built prestige boats even beyond that <laughs> that went as high as 40. What? Yes. 40 men to an oar? 40 men to an oar. No, wow. 40 men to a column of oars. So 40 men on a number of oars could have been three oars, could have been 10 oars. Got it. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> All right. You know, I, I have to say uh, transportation, I think it's a wash. Both cultures, both time periods, uh, yep. check the box. Yeah. I think Rome gets at least four out of five stars for transportation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. So your other choices are you have a culture of growth. Textile manufacturing industry, financial innovations, or an agricultural revolution? You know, I love uh, economics. Let's go with the financial innovations. All right. This is a fun one. Okay, so financial innovations. Another thing that might have held back widespread mechanization may have been a lack of financial institutions safeguarding the investments necessary to, like, you know, get all that machinery up and running. Britain's mercantile class was supported by the innovation of banks and stock markets. Bank loans made it easier to obtain investment capital, and joint shareholders effectively you know, kind of diffused the risk mm, yeah. in case of a venture going belly up. Right? 
So this made it much more feasible to raise capital and to lay out investments in machinery that may or may not pay off. And if it does pay off, it may not pay off for several years. Hmm. Ancient Rome did, in fact, have this at least in part. Hmm. Yes. So they did not have banks per se. Well, it depends on who you read, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, on, on the side of like not real banks. But they did have a basic system of banking loans, and the role of the banker actually fell at first to temples. The public image of temple priests as devout made the public trust them with their money, and so the role of early banker fell to them. And the temple of Saturn in Rome, for example, held the aerarium, which was Rome's public treasury, and the temple of Juno Moneta acted as a mint for coins, and such temples loaned out their wealth with interest. Hmm. So that's pretty much banking. Yeah, right. You know, later money changers called argentarii, argentarii, so, silver, silver dudes, basically, silver dudes, silverers. Yep. Yep. And public bankers called mensarii took over the role in sort of a more secular manner. So you did have a similar ability to raise capital by loans. So you kind of pretty much had that. The stock market, however, was unknown in the ancient world. You just didn't have that. They had a very rudimentary proto-concept of shareholding in the days of the Republic. For example, certain public duties, such as the feeding of the geese on the Capitoline Hill, which was this kind of like ritual display of gratitude after they supposedly honked and thus warned of the Gallic invasion, and thereafter Ooh. they pledged to like feed them as thanks. Good job, geese. Yeah, so you would share out the duty of feeding hmm. these geese on the Capitoline Hill. And this was performed by organizations of contractors or leaseholders who each held shares called partes. Okay. And the price of them, it was said by Cicero to have been very high. And this has been interpreted by some people to mean that these shares were traded like stocks. If hmm. they have a price that's high. Well, so let me, maybe I'm not understanding the concept. So we're saying that Feeding the geese is not just a cool ritual thing that we as a Roman society do. Being the one who feeds them is a privilege? Is that like it's an honor? So you want to get to be one of the ones who has a share in feeding them? I don't understand what the motivation was. If you right. were making a profit somehow off of it, yeah. I don't understand that part. That's, yeah. So take right. that for what you will. The, at, the, at the very least, it was a duty that was parceled out in shares to multiple parties and you could buy a share it was possibly traded at a high price yeah okay it's quite speculative that that is what you know because it could it also mean that like once a year we we give out you know shares that'll last for one year and it costs x dollars to to yeah. buy a share rather than you can trade them among yourselves but either way yeah yeah okay so people are shareholders you're buying the prestige yeah right that's possible yeah but well, it's fun to think about right right okay so it is possible that Rome was held back from widespread industrialization by the risk of investment, the necessary machinery, and other high costs because they just didn't have some of these innovations like the stock market. In addition, there's another facet of the economic side of things that may have been quite significant. By the 18th century, Britain had developed a strong mercantile class. We've mentioned this a couple of times before that they had like the ability to adopt, invest in, and maintain new technologies that were profitable for their businesses. Rome didn't have very much of that. Mm -hmm. They had kind of a mercantile class, but eh, not, not nearly on the same scale. 
Right. Now, here's where this really becomes significant. If a technology, which was once sponsored by the state, let's say, loses its support, it wouldn't disappear in Britain so long as it had a reason for these mercantile people to invest in it and keep it going hmm. for their own business interests. Yeah. They would adopt it, and thus it would just kind of like diffuse through the land. And so if the state loses interest, it doesn't disappear. Hmm. And that way you can ratchet up your technology. You don't lose things when, you know, political winds change. Yeah. Very different in the ancient Roman world. If, you know, some project, let's say a steam locomotive system, mm -hmm. is funded by one emperor, but then he gets offed because that's what happens to a Roman emperor. And then the next guy is like, I'm all about doing the opposite of what the last guy did. <laughs> then you lose everything. Right. Right. And you might have a couple of generations where no work is being done on this. And then that technology might just be completely lost. Right. You might even forget how to do it. Yeah. That's entirely possible. Hmm. Yeah. That's a huge. So that problem. was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So on the finance side, so it sounds like the fact that there was not really a system of joint shareholding or stock ownership to diffuse risk. Uh, the fact that there wasn't a big merchant class to be mm -hmm. doing this risk and the fact that any little political change of winds could just spell the end of a project for years and maybe just wipe it out. Yep. Yeah. And the last thing, mm -hmm. this is interesting too, is in the ancient world where you had states as the primary entity interested in these new technologies in instituting them at least, because it was states that were interested in that then you had the concept of state secrets. Mm. And if your, if your state had a technology to do something nobody else did, that gave you an advantage and you didn't want anybody else. You didn't want the Persians. You didn't want the Germans. You didn't want anybody else to get that same technology. So you want to keep it secret. Mm. That made it very fragile to being, to disappearing. Right. And you saw that in a lot of the Hellenistic city states that Rome conquered. So a lot of them were developing technologies that they didn't write down. Mm. that they didn't share with anybody else. Then Rome comes in, kicks in the door, kills all the engineers, and then, oops, we've lost the technology. Wow. So that was something that could totally happen. You know, I don't I don't know if that's as big of a factor, to be honest. I mean, it is. It, 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 obviously, that's crummy, right? Okay. But, like, it wasn't that different in the Industrial Revolution. I mean, like, all the early industrialization stuff that Britain was doing were considered, like, highly valuable secrets that were not supposed to leave Britain. That is true. And that is how America got started, was that, like, one dude smuggled out the plans for a cotton mill and brought it to this country, you know? So, I mean, Rome was so big that I think it would have been capable of having innovations within its own population, if that's what it was focused on, mm -hmm. even if it couldn't necessarily borrow the ideas of its neighbor states. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair retort to that. Okay. So that's the economic side. That's financial innovations. We've got a few more. So we've got a culture of growth, the textile manufacturing industry, or the agricultural revolution. Let's do textiles. This okay. is what I think of as what kicked off the whole British Industrial Revolution. So. Right. Okay. So you're absolutely right. Britain's revolution was like the textile manufacturing industry was big for Britain. Imported cotton from India and the Americas was processed into cloth in Britain. And the fact that they developed first like 
like good looms and stuff. And then they eventually mechanized their looms, even with steam power, hmm. like really made them able to take that raw material and just pump shit out. And like no one else could compete with that. And uh, you saw on the continent of Europe, you saw like extremely high tariffs being put up uh, in order that like the local industries wouldn't just simply collapse because the British stuff was so cheap because they could pump Ooh. it out so fast. Right. So it was really, really big for Britain's economy to be able to have an industry for which they could completely outcompete anybody else. Right. Ancient Romans, so far as I know, weren't into textiles. I mean, mm. they made textiles, but it wasn't their one thing, right? But they did have a wide variety of industries across a far-flung empire, any one of which could have served a similar role, potentially. Mm. They did mechanize industries which could have served a similar purpose. So we've already seen, for example, water mills mechanizing flour production, lumber production, maybe stone and marble production. They had olive presses, and those worked by like a screw, kind of like a screw press. Oh, sure, like, yeah. And right. like squeeze all of that oil out. So if you imagined, let's say, olive oil becomes the thing for Rome. Um, not hard to imagine. Not that hard to imagine. Uh, yeah, you could, you could imagine them just shipping that across the Mediterranean, up mm. the Atlantic to Britain, you know, just over to India. And, you know, if then if they had better transportation systems developed by new technologies that could go even farther, it could just become massive. Yeah. You can imagine like a steam powered olive press that just pushes them over the edge. Hmm. Kind of interesting to think about. I'm glad that you went into these other technologies because I really thought we we're going to focus on textiles. And the thing I'm not clear on is by the time of Britain's yeah. Industrial Revolution, they had spinning wheels to spin raw wool into uh, usable you know, yarn. Um, but in ancient Rome, I'm not sure they had spinning wheels. I think they did drop spindles. And if you're using a drop mm -hmm. spindle, it's, it's a hand process. There is literally no way you could hook that up to a water wheel or something and make it go faster. So they wouldn't have even been able to automate it with that technology. But you're right. I mean, yeah, olive oil presses, milling grain, all these other things that you mentioned, mm -hmm. I could see them industrializing just not with textiles as the first you know, key piece. Yeah. Yeah, good point. They probably couldn't have done it with textiles, even if they had the cotton. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. So we've got culture of growth and the agricultural revolution. Agriculture. All right. All right. So this is a fun one for me. It's really big. A major factor in Britain's industrialization was a massive population boom enabled by an agricultural revolution that happened a little bit before. Hmm. The 17th century, so 1600s, saw the start of a boom that skyrocketed Britain's population in the 18th century. Well, you can just... I am I, actually not that familiar with that. Can you, in a nutshell, I, tell me like what happened that made an agricultural boom? What changed? I absolutely can. Oh, great. Yes. So you can see how dramatic the change was if you just Google up a graph. And you'll see it like it goes like just toddling along to like, boom, just like nearly straight up. Right. It's amazing. Um, the kinds of things that brought this about were one of them was uh, better crop rotation and understanding mm. like the kinds of things that put the right nutrients back into the soil yep. above and beyond traditional knowledge but experimenting with new things i oh. think turnips were big oh wow okay. as a new new method so they didn't have to have stuff land lying fallow as much hmm. another was the importation of the moldboard plow from china 
more durable and et cetera, et cetera. Heavy manuring for fertilizer hmm. and aggressive reclamation and management of land by landlords. A lot of it was really just the just management hmm. by landlords who for whatever reason, we're really starting to look at how do we maximize what little land we have? Because hmm. Britain's not huge. Right. You know, France, pretty big. Right. You know, Russia, massive. Massive. Right? Got wide open spaces of land. Britain, not so much. Hmm. A lot of it's uplands and rocky stuff that you can't farm very well. It's good for sheep. So what little bit you got for land, landlords are motivated to be like, maybe I can do something with this extra little bit. Maybe hmm. I can drain this swampland. Maybe I can make more efficient use of what I've got. And a lot of that just really transformed how agriculture was done in Britain, leading to this massive population boom. Yep. Yeah. Now, when it comes to ancient Rome, as far as I can tell, it never experienced any such agricultural revolution leading to a population boom. And I should also say that one of the big reasons why a population boom is important to an industrial revolution is because then... You've got so many more workers available, and a lot of them oh, are yeah. freed from working the land so they can do other things, yes. like working in factories or using their minds to come up with new shit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as I can tell, though, Roman Empire never experienced any such agricultural revolution leading to a population boom. In fact, it may have experienced massive depopulation in its later years. You ever heard this before? I have. Yeah, I had too. But when I actually tried to find some recent like, scholarly research on that, I couldn't find very much at all. Oh. Almost everything came from like 19th century, early 20th century oh, kind of stuff. So I don't know how much stock to put in it Yeah, anymore. right. It may just have been that rather than the overall population declining, it may have been that people were moving away from cities due mm. to famines, plagues. Wars, all of that stuff was a big deal right. in the later Roman Empire. And so you had a lot of landlords moving away to their country villas. Mm. And you started developing the paradigm you would see in medieval Europe where a landlord, would, like he had his domain where he had his peasants that were outside his castle and yep. they, they were working the land. Um, rather than the aristocrats all living concentrated in the city. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Why? Well, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. So may or may not have experienced the opposite of what Britain did, a, a depopulation. Can't quite say. Hmm. What I can say is that at the height of Rome's empire, it had massive urbanization. Right. Massive urbanization for the time. Rome itself had an estimated one million plus people in it. And just to put that into perspective... Um, no other city in the world would reach that population level until uh, the early modern era. Hmm. I think Beijing in like the 1600s. Wow. And then other than Beijing, no other city would reach that until London in 1800. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then it wasn't just Rome either. You had other big metropolises like Alexandria had something like, I think, 500,000 people. What? I um, know that. Carth Carthage had 300,000. Antioch wow. had 250,000. So cities represented, I've seen figures between 25 and 50% of the overall population was urbanized. So all of that led to a situation where you had people concentrated right where you would most likely see factories hmm. needing workers. Yeah. So... 
that was a big contributing factor to maybe they could have had an industrial revolution, although the population boom was not necessarily there. Right, yeah. But the urbanization component right. of it Kind was of like there. the same effect for a different reason. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's the agricultural revolution piece. And the last one that we have to talk about is a culture of growth. I would this I almost chose this one first cuz it sounds fascinating. What is the culture of growth? Right. I know, right? Okay. So it's about attitudes toward progress. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So by the 18th century, Europe enjoyed the perception that things were on the up. Hmm. Things were getting better. It had been through the Renaissance and it was on into the Enlightenment and Things have been progressing, seeming to get better and better in terms of how much knowledge was available, you know, how much, you know, all this stuff for long enough that it started, it was starting to feel like this was the natural way things would go. Yeah, this is the go. momentum yeah. of history. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like things are just going to keep getting better. What Whereas that, like, I think for much of human history in many cultures, the default assumption would be like, things are, things are always worse. a certain way. Well, not necessarily, although certainly in some time periods, but like, okay. I think oftentimes people think like, this is what I do. This is what my parents did. My grandparents, my yes. great grandparents. This is just the way things are. Either it was like a cycle. Yeah. Or a oh, lot yeah, of times it right. was like things were getting worse. There was mm. like an ideal paradise age. Well, that's true. Yeah. There's always like a lost golden age of some kind. Yes. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. So that was the opposite in Europe by the 18th century. And what this attitude of progress meant was that you were more optimistic about your prospects if you invested in something long-term. Huh, yeah. Or you were more optimistic if you invented something that kind of worked mm. in the Mark I phase, yep. but you knew that you know somebody was going to come along to improve that and then improve that. Maybe it'd be you, maybe it'd be somebody else. But eventually you're going to have something that worked, even if the thing that you're producing right now is just a pathetic pile of crap. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> There was that sense that it's inevitable that things are going to take off. Hmm. That was big. Okay. In contrast, it is commonly argued, at least, that Rome lacked this kind of culture of growth. And one of the reasons regards the attitude toward worldly pursuits among the educated elite of the ancient world. This is an argument that I've read so many times in scholarly works hmm. about ancient philosophers, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, etc. The idea was that instead of having this idea that you could practically improve the world, and then that would be a good thing, you were hmm. doing a uh, like a doing a noble thing by doing that. The idea, rather, was that worldly pursuits were blue collar. <laughs> oh, interesting. Whereas the hot stuff, the white collar stuff, was contemplating eternity and eternal truths, platonic mm. forms, all these, you know, very lofty ideals, you mm. know, things that were unchangeable, you know, mm. weren't mutable like the world and it's with its ups and downs. Right. That's the traditional portrait of ancient philosophy and the attitudes there. And it's been argued that this kind of attitude may have held back innovation because you just didn't have that kind of like valuation of, you know, worldly pursuits and the uh, idea that it's a good thing hmm. to improve the world and that you could. You didn't have the idea that you're going to gain prestige and everybody's going to laud you as like the greatest of the great 
if you invented a new like way to press olives, you know. So I I get what you're saying. Do you buy it? I don't. Okay, good. Me no, neither. I, yeah, I, I don't buy no. it. I don't buy it at all. I mean, that same civilization, like Rome in particular, I mean, it had a very clear mission of like, we're constantly going to expand the borders of this empire, which is a way of saying like, we believe that over time we can improve things, not make life better for people, but like, we believe that we can grow things over time. I think maybe like side by side with that, though, what was really big in Rome was there was a constant threat of chaos or downfall in Rome. The ability of a, a change in the, the will of the people to completely alter who was in power, who wasn't, or for one you know family or politician to rise up and be able to take down all of their enemies at once. For, yeah, more of that than people, per se. Yeah, the within sense, the people but, who would more be enlisted in. Yeah. yeah, right. But there were a lot of assassinations. Assassinations and like wars were always happening and, and changing the borders and like there's always fires you had to put out. Like you couldn't just like... Well, we've added this area to the empire and now it's ours forever. It's like, no. And now there's constant struggles over there trying to keep that in the empire. And I think that like in that time period, the idea of an investment you were going to trust in and make for the future was like, will this pay off by this time next year? You know, (laughs) like, like over the next 50 years is like, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I think the political realities that you're describing would have been a big factor. Yeah, definitely. Now, I don't buy this argument of scholarship either, because I think that there's evidence that they did, in fact, value worldly pursuits among the educated elite. They did, in fact, value engineers and people who made new olive presses and stuff. And you can see that by top 10 lists, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> ancient top 10 lists. What? So it was actually kind of a genre. They had writing. listicles? So, yes, they had listicles. Yes. They had BuzzFeed. Wow. You know, you've heard of the seven wonders of the world. Yes. That was one of them. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They had these lists that w- it was fairly common to have these Hall of Fame rosters of like the greatest things in each field and the greatest names in each field Mm, right and so you would see lists like this of sculptors painters architects legislators all of these come from an actual text that we have called the Laterculi alexandrini Hmm. second century bce okay and on this very list next to all of those artistic and philosophical and rhetorical and political you know great people they had engineers right next to them wow it was, they were called mechanicoi or mm-hmm. mechanicians. And this suggests, it implies, that they had at least a reasonably similar level of prestige that they were held in. Yeah. Enough to make it to the same kinds of lists. Right. It was a valued enough field that anyone yep. would care about reading about the top seven or top, top ten. Yep. And the, you even see on these lists um, names of people who have feats that are apparently so widely known in the empire that they don't even have to explain it on the list. So you've got this guy, Abderaxis, and the only comment for him is, who built the machines of Alexandria? What machines? God, Everybody they... knows. Come How do you on. not know the machines oh. of Alexandria? So I like, really wish they put a footnote on that. Do we, from any other context, <laughs> no, know what these machines... Know. Oh, we don't wow. know what those machines were okay. that he particularly did. It's probably your condition. There were lots of machines in Alexandria. Yeah. We don't know what he did. Right. But the implication is that People were talking about engineers and be like, did you hear what this like Elonus Muscus did? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know? Wow. So how did we get this mistaken idea then that the ancients didn't value worldly pursuits? 
it seems that it well, I think it's because people just make up random stuff about the ancient world. Like, well, you know, that's we invented philosophy, so I guess that's all they cared about. Like, it's so much BS about ancient Roman Greece. No, not exactly. Oh, absolutely. So there's actually evidence to suggest mm-hmm. that this was the case. For example, you have a comment from Aristotle who says that, here he says in the metaphysics, as more and more arts were invented, some pertaining to necessities and some to pastimes, the inventors of the latter the pastimes were always considered wiser than the inventors of the former because their knowledge was not oriented toward utility. Mm. So that's Aristotle, right? And then he's wrong got... about everything else, though. I don't know if I buy that. That's an accurate statement of what's wrong about everything. He's pretty much everything. <laughs> so you also got guys like Plutarch, who goes on to describe Archimedes as being lost in his work and totally uninterested in uh, practically applying any of the things that he was contemplating on this super high intellectual level. But here's the thing. After the Roman Empire, like, gradually did its thing and fell apart, right? And then you got the medieval period. They were basically playing a game of Desert Island. Like, what texts are you going to keep? Because you can't keep them all. Oh, right. And so they kept the ones that were most relevant to them. Hmm. The ones that with the philosophy that bore upon their Christian theology and whatnot. Yeah, right. And so there was this kind of weird filtering effect yeah. where you got people who were naturally inclined, like Plutarch, he mm-hmm. was a Neoplatonist. They were all about not doing the worldly and doing the eternal yeah. type stuff. You, na- you naturally got these people who portrayed that attitude surviving in the text. Yeah. And you didn't get That's exactly. the other ones were selected yeah. out. That's kind of what I mean. I mean, it's like this, like this filter of like romanticizing the Roman past, which really did start with like yeah. Christian monks and Christian philosophers, like you know. Yeah. Okay. So to conclude, mm-hmm. right? Let's summarize what we've talked about. Right. right. So Rome is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a number of things that, first of all, that Rome pretty much checked out for. Like they had. Pretty interesting innovations in technology going for them. They had lots of coal and iron. They had political influence over territories that they had resources that they could exploit. And they had um, new scientific ideas that were really, you know, going in their favor for an industrial revolution. They did not, however, have the printing press and widespread cheap availability of knowledge for a large segment of the populace. So you had that. Then for the ones that we talked about in more depth... You had the improved transportation systems. Pretty damn good. Four to five stars. Yeah. Maybe not quite as good, but pretty damn good. Manufacturing industries like the textile industry. They didn't do textiles, but they could easily have industrialized olive oil presses and stuff like that. Yeah. And really gone to the world scale, right? Financial innovations. They had banks in the forms of temples and then later the other guys. They didn't have a stock market, though. Right. And that made it difficult to spread out risk for investments. Agricultural revolution and urbanization. Very urbanized, no population boom. Hmm. The slave economy, the whole free labor thing. Mm -hmm. The fact that the laborers in ancient Rome could not just go naturally where the work was. You were dependent on their bosses realizing yeah. that it was most profitable to send them there. And the bosses may or may not have felt a crunch around having a strong, sudden urge to do that. So, exactly. Yeah, right. That could have been big. Right. Yep. The idea that it would hold them back from mechanizing, not so much. But I think what you said was big. Hmm. And finally, the the culture of growth idea. They didn't have the same sense of progress. They did, however, 
value worldly pursuits, engineers, right. things like that. So, I don't know what, yeah, where tough. to put the greatest stress in why Rome did not industrialize. You know, with that last one, honestly, like Rome was so built around the ambition of continuing to strengthen the glory of Rome. Like mm -hmm. I, it may not have been a culture of quote unquote growth, yeah. but I would say that the drive was there. I don't think that was the decisive factor in why they yeah. didn't do it. So all of this gives us some tantalizing hints of why Rome, despite its technology, never underwent an industrial revolution. There's no knockout cases here spelling doom for industrialization, but a bunch of sort of kind of maybe causes, right? Yeah. But we have yet to discuss one possibility that could possibly have tipped the scales. Aliens? <laughs> it's not aliens. <laughs> this is not the History Channel. <laughs> Scholars definitely disagree super widely on this point, oh, so great. take it with a grain of salt. Yep. But for this final point, I'm just going to follow Italian historian of science, Lucio Russo, that we've mentioned several times already. Can you use an Italian because, accent? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Lucio. Because he's the most fun scholar to follow. Oh, great. And if you trust Russo, the thing that maybe, kind of, sort of, possibly could have held Rome back more than anything else was Rome itself, or rather... Its central driving policy, its modus operandi, its raison d'etre conquest. Because remember, earlier we mentioned that in the case of some of the Hellenistic city-states that were developing technologies, Rome would sometimes come in, knock down the door, kill everybody, and suddenly a technology was lost. Uh, yeah, right. That really is a thing that happened again and again and again hmm. in the process of Roman expansion before Rome even had a chance to industrialize. It had already in a sense, according to Rousseau, killed the goose that laid the golden egg. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be talking about next time. Next time. Could the Romans have put a man on the moon? <laughs> Is that where you're going with that? If they had just if they'd not only... <laughs> destroyed Alexandria. <laughs> so it's going to be Alexandria next time? We're going to talk about the Hellenistic world. Yes. We're going to talk about Alexandria, the library at Alexandria, and all of the amazing innovation that came out of that intellectual ferment, which was fucked up by the Romans. We are basically Not taking... Not just the Romans, but the Romans did their fair share. We're taking everything that my teenage self loved about the ancient world and doing it in one series. I <laughs> cannot wait for this. Awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Andre, thank you for being on the show again. Thank you. This is an honor. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, remember you can support the show. Just go to www.patreon.com, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a crimson-plumed legionary toot tooting your way to Britain aboard the Imperium Express. <laughs> or what do we call it? The, the Appian Line? The Appian Line, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, everybody, if you've never gotten your portrait done, if you haven't joined the Patreon yet, I am looking around at walls of these. I'm always in awe when I'm in the recording studio. I'm looking right now at a man who is dressed as a tinker gnome from D&D, &D, the exact kind of person who could have invented a Roman steam locomotive. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And since the podcast is drawing to a close soon, is it a limited time offer to get these portraits? Yep. Get it while they're hot? Get it while it's hot. Yeah. Get it while it's um, steamy. Yep. So whatever you want, I will make you look good. I promise. And also remember that your money supports the prep work for our upcoming new show mm -hmm. on the history of sex covering gender, sex, and quirk across world cultures throughout history. And the very next episode coming out, lots and lots of great podcaster guests are doing the History of History podcasting next time. 
So that's we'll next be time, and then it'll be back to Alexandria. And we'll be Alexandria. back to Steampunk Rome after that. Amazing. Yep. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm-hmm.